0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Well, it's good afternoon now. I'm Peter York and I'm here to introduce Peter Lough, MP for mid Worcestershire. I don't know exactly where that is. Um, uh, but he'll tell us.
1: And he is the <laughs> Minister
0: for Defence Equipment Support and Technology and Peter Lough was first um, elected in the 1992 election. He's worked in his family company, he's worked in PR, he worked for the wonderful Peter Walker, um, uh, now alas no longer with us. He's been a a scrutineer, chairman of the Commons Agricultural Committee and then the trade and industry one five years as a whip and then chairman of the TNI committee, the Trade and Industry Committee, he oversaw a raft of inquiries including the aerospace and the motorsports ones and they're absolutely key sectors for the UK and he's responsible for 40% of the UK's defence budget. We're talking about a lot. All equipment acquisitions and support and for the MOD science programme and the American equivalent, I think I'm fair in saying this, of the MOD science programme, is what kick-started Silicon Valley. That was the pump priming in the 1970s of Silicon Valley. So what are we doing about that? He's also the department's champion for small business. It's all an awesome responsibility and he's going to tell us how that relates to UK manufacturing. Peter.
1: Right. Uh, and I'm out of time, so thank you very much. Um, uh, no, I think I've been generously allowed, uh, given my slot back, I think uh, so I'm afraid we'll get the full version. Um, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I am by background an economist uh, with a passion for engineering. In fact, a secret regret I didn't become an engineer. Uh, so I really welcome the initiative in organising today's event. Um, uh, it is a truism, but I think it needs to be said nonetheless, especially by ministers, that the role of contribution of manufacturing in today's global economy is central to us all, in particularly to this country. And I know this morning's session is centred on the producer's view, the industry perspective, of the manufacturing economy. So the challenges and opportunities companies face uh, in a globalised and technological age. And I think you discussed just recently the challenge of inspiring young people to get involved in production and manufacturing. Now well, that's something I feel particularly passionately about um, I simply can't understand the constant hand-wringing in this country about the state of our manufacturing industry, the gloomy assertions that we don't and can't make anything anymore, or the endless claims it's by some other people, that the event it doesn't really matter anyhow, manufacturing doesn't count and is irrelevant to our economy. Um, it, it just, it does literally make my blood boil well, not quite literally, but nearly literally, um, because all this helpful unhelpful armchair criticism just doesn't reflect the facts uh, I, I expect some of you saw Evan Davis's excellent TV programme last year on UK manufacturing. I think he did a great job in exploiting that urban myth that Britain is no longer an industrial nation. Um, and uh, to answer the, uh, the point of introduction about Worcestershire, uh, no one knows where it is. Uh, in, it's true, it's south of Birmingham, northwest of Oxford, um, and it has it's home to brilliant engineering companies. You know, uh, GKN has its headquarters in Worcestershire. Uh, Kinetic, just on the road from where I, where, where I live in Worcester, at Melbourne. Uh, some tiny companies doing amazing things. And yet, my association, my conservative association, said, oh, we don't make anything more. Worcestershire makes an awful lot. We should be really, really proud of it. We couldn't survive, as Evan Davis said, without um, our vital manufacturing industries. And, and we are still, we mustn't forget it, a manufacturing powerhouse, you know this. Upwards of four million people still making everything, from supercars to high-tech aircraft. Uh, there are t- there are, and this, this is a fact people don't remember. There are, these are people employed in the sector which is in economic terms twice as big as financial services. In fact, manufacturing accounts for half of all UK exports. So we, don't, we don't talk about these things. I don't know why people don't have these facts, facts firmly in their heads. I'll be talking about the role of our defence industry and our manufacturing industries later. But what really concerns me at all this talking down to manufacturing uh, is that uh, the gloomy media headlines risk becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, and worryingly acts as a, disincent- as a disincentive to young people who might otherwise be working in industry. I think in the last session, you were saying that engineering is not seen as cool. For me, it's the coolest job going. It does some of the coolest things this country does. Uh, and I just think it's staggering that we, we, we risk losing uh, our ability to provide the industry with the skills it needs because it's perception. Uh, I see this particularly in the defence industry. Uh, there is a huge demand in this country, a huge demand for well-qualified people with the right engineering, scientific and technical skills. The demand is there. The people aren't. Um, these are subjects that just haven't been popular options in recent years. And, of course, and i was glad to address an audience well, on a defence-related team where about half are women, which is makes a pleasant change. Defence is overwhelmingly a male environment, so I think it must change. Um, and there are a notable lack of women in engineering roles throughout, throughout the profession as well. And one of the reasons behind the recent decision to allow women to serve in the Royal Navy submarines is the possibility that we can attract people from the widest pool of talent and skills into the service. You know, it, it's, it's everyone's interest to attract women into engineering. Uh, but into the companies I deal with in defence... Um, tell me that skill shortages are having direct impact on their growth and productivity. In fact, increasingly I'm hearing, particularly from smaller businesses, that skill shortages of engineering uh, uh, at apprentice level and, and, and graduate level are the single greatest problem they face. Uh, the single greatest problem. Um, uh, I was at a SME recently in the South Coast. They've given up looking for engineers in the UK. They can't find any. They're recruiting from Spain and Portugal directly. Uh, and certainly so this, this is a scandal. There are jobs going begging for British engineers. And we have to reverse this decline to make sure being an engineer is is seen as being a genuinely attractive proposition. It's a career choice with the same status it should be as being a doctor or a lawyer. It should have the same professionalism attached to it. Now, this isn't an issue just for government or even for industry. It's it's for all of us. It matters to our wider economy. It's all of society that's got to get this right. Uh, Nurturing and developing talent at an early stage is a particularly effective way of developing our skills as a country. The MOD I think is quite good at this. We have run a range of civilian craft and technician apprenticeships across the country. The Armed Forces as a whole are the largest providers of apprenticeships across the public sector. And looking at Nigel in the front row, BA Systems, one of today's sponsors, I don't know about Coca-Cola's record I'm afraid, I'm sure I'll be told afterwards, but BA Systems are particularly successful in this area when it comes to to development. They are really genuinely renowned for the pull through from apprenticeships to senior management Uh, uh, and that's really good, that's as it should be. So I think we're all in agreement that developing our skills base is an essential driver of our economy. Uh, uh, you've been talking this morning about the need for growth and how innovation is central to this process too I'm here to talk primarily about the manufacturing economy from the perspective of one of its major customers of the Ministry of Defence I'll be outlining some of the changes we're making in our approach to buying equipment in particular our commitment to making the MOD more accessible to SMEs and explaining why that's so important and about our determination to become a more intelligent customer now the defence industry, you wouldn't think this either sometimes when reading newspapers is one of the UK's most vibrant sectors The facts, I think, speak for themselves. It's an industry supporting around 300,000 jobs in this country, many of them in advanced engineering, an area which this country has such a distinguished tradition and strong track record and still does amazing things. Take aerospace, for example, a great example of an R&D-intensive high-tech industry with technological spin-offs to the rest of the economy. We have, you know this, I hope, the second largest aerospace industry in, uh, in the world, the largest in Europe, second only behind the USA. Um, UK Aerospace has turned over £23 billion. Uh, defence in total, I believe, accounts for just over half of that, 52%, to be precise. So, and this country is the second largest defence exporter in the world, uh, with £6 billion of annual sales, 22% share of the global market. And, and, yeah, you read a lot about the strait and circumstances of the MOD, it's true, but we have the fourth biggest defence budget in the world, and the MOD is a customer with a lot of spending power. Uh, however... Qualified. As a government department, we are also accountable to the taxpayer, of course. Making sure defence has an equipment programme which is balanced and affordable is important. Uh, and in an age of national and defence austerity, it's absolutely vital. Um, we had a problem. It's no secret. This government inherited a Ministry of Defence with a gaping deficit and an equipment programme that was in financial freefall. A programme based on the kind of fantasy budgets that I know many of you here from the corporate sector would find it pretty hard to countenance or even imagine. Now we are, we've been working hard to balance the books. Uh, Hopefully it won't be long before we can announce our plans and PR12 and the equipment plan itself. But getting a grip of this gaping deficit, and it was a huge one, uh, as we have, uh, meant and will mean in the future driving forward a lot of change in the organisation. It calls for a new mindset from from the whole department uh, and a very different approach. And as I said earlier, becoming a more intelligent customer. Uh, That means we're taking a long, hard look at our processes and the way we do business, Upping our game when it comes to having the right skills in areas like financial and project management. And that means significant changes in Defence and Equipment and Support, DNS as it's known, the organisation outside Bristol which heads up our acquisition. The materiel strategy aims to transform DNS to ensure it has the relationships, structures, management, and skills it needs to provide the right equipment to the armed forces at the right time and at the right cost. Um, uh, And this is really important because if we are a better customer, I believe the defence industry itself becomes better, too, and stronger. Uh, We've looked at a number of options, and we've pretty well ruled out the status quo. Uh, I've already said in public there are three options, judged most appropriate, uh, um, trading fund, executive non-departmental public body, and government-owned contractor-operated organisation. We've got extensive experience um, uh, of running trading funds, for example, the Met Office, until recently part of MOD, and DSTL, the Science Labs. And so DNS is now begun a soft market testing exercise to obtain further information for the private sector about the other options to help inform our decision-making. And I do hope anyone who's involved in engaging with DNS on that will do so enthusiastically, because it really matters we get the right answer from defence, the taxpayer, and the defence industry. I just stress no decisions have been taken, although we intend to have a clear idea later this year on the best option to take forward. We're changing our processes as well. We're already changing our approach to acquisition, and this has not been out some controversy. It's necessary for us, and I believe it's essential for industry. That's because the defence industry, any industry in fact, has to be competitive if it's to thrive in today's economy. We're making sure this change happens. Last month, uh, we launched our white paper, National Security Through Technology, a plan of action for defence which commits us to adopting a new open procurement approach. What does that mean? Well, pretty much what it says on the tin. It means we'll be seeking to fulfil defence requirements through open competition in the domestic and global market. It means buying off the shelf if that represents the best value for money, which it often will. There's no reason, though, why a competitive British defence industry shouldn't win that business. Recent history, very recent history. For example, the Foxhound Protectability Vehicle or the C-Septor Missile System shows it does. I want to think of a company like Maybe Bridge Company, a company you may not have heard of in South Wales. It's a world leader when it comes to prefabricated bridge designs. They won a number of contracts to supply logistics support bridging to our forces in Afghanistan. When I mean, British Army engineers took on construction of a 140-ton bridge to connect two Afghan communities in Helmand, the biggest bridge our soldiers have built since World War II, it was maybe who won the contract, and modified off the shelf. The next option: buying a platform that's freely available on the British or international market, and then integrating it with, say, electronic countermeasures or communication equipment here in the UK, ensures vital system skills maintained in our domestic manufacturing sector. And again, in Worcester I think of a company like Ditechna, which is doing precisely that, for example, with the Husky um, uh, vehicle. Um, open procurement means actively looking for ways to collaborate, preferably bilaterally, with other countries, because this will often offer economies of scale, and benefits such as longer production runs. Countries such as the US, our major bilateral partner, uh, uh, where collaboration allows us to uh, access to cutting-edge research, for example. And, of course, France, with whom we're now cooperating on a range of defence programmes. Together, the UK and France account for half of all Europe's defence expenditure. Uh, we led, you know, as you know, last year's op- uh, our operations in Libya, and now we're working to co- develop a combined joint expeditionary force. For both countries, collaboration means our money goes further. It means also, crucially for industry, that we can maintain a critical mass of demand for skills and industries we might otherwise lose. And very importantly, it ensures, from my point of view, as a defence minister, we can operate our combined forces effectively. So our open approach can be best summed up by the word pragmatic. However, that certainly doesn't mean any compromise when it comes to this country's operational security and sovereign capability. MOD's white paper put technology at the heart of our equipment programme. In the world of business, technological advantage quite properly means making money and increasing a market share. For defence, it's now absolutely crucial to our modus operandi and making sure we have operational advantage, as we term it, over potential adversaries. So we need to invest in technology to be able to meet an increasingly capable and diverse range of threats, which is why it was so extraordinarily short-sighted, and excuse the temporary deviation deviation to party politics, but it's an objective observation as well, so extraordinarily short-sighted of the previous government to more than halve the MOD's science and technology budget between 1997 and 2010, I am determined this process of decline is immediately stopped, and it has been. The proportion of spending on science technology is now baselined at its current level, baselined uh, at its current level of 1.2% of the overall defence budget. At the moment, that's around 400 million pounds a year. So that's quite a lot of money. A commitment to technology and open procurement also means opening up defence to providers with agility, innovation, and the ability to exploit new and emerging technologies. That means making defence a lot more accessible to small and medium-sized enterprises another key principle of the white paper. Now, you know this, SMEs are the lifeblood of any in- successful industry today, and it's certainly the case in defense. In fact, when it's agility and innovation we're looking for, and that's certainly been the case in recent years when it comes to, for example, getting urgent operational requirements out to our forces in Afghanistan, we found it's these smaller organizations which have proved time and time again that they can and will deliver. And so we're determined to open, open up more of our business to them. We're making progress. SMEs currently win 42% of MD's equipment contracts. Uh, in financial terms rather small, that's around a billion pounds of new business a year. And many more SMEs, are, of course, contributing to defence and security programmes as subcontractors. Opening up our businesses, of course, also means we have to be a lot more accessible. It means making sure, for example, there's an emphasis on open systems factored into our requirements. And scope for these smaller companies to offer the kind of modular systems which enhance major weapons and platforms. Um, and making us more accessible, of course, means we need to make sure SMEs know about our requirements, what we need and are able to put forward their ideas and ensure they're properly assessed. That's where the Centre for Defence Enterprise comes in, CDE. I don't know how many of you heard of CDE. I describe it as my, the jewel in my crown, really, as a Defence Minister. Based in Harwell, but present everywhere on the web and through its outreach activities, it acts as an entry point for new science and technology providers. It unlocks the potential of SMEs and gives practical help by sending out themed calls, for example, on a range of issues, uh, and organising one-to-one surgeries, providing guidance on how best to pitch an idea to MOD. CDE cuts a lot of the red tape, uh, which so often seems to engulf an organisation like ours, and is such a disincentive to SME engagement. Companies can get advice from the CDE team in Harwell and submit their research proposal online and track its progress. That proposal is generally assessed, this is amazing for the public sector at all, never mind MOD, assessed in 25 working days, and and it can take as little as 15 CD was originally launched as a pilot scheme in 2008. It's been a great success. It's time to take its next phase. That's why yesterday announced an expansion of its role, additional activities which provide a dedicated focus to SMEs. Activities such as marketplace events for SMEs to showcase their projects, defence primes, and the venture capital investment community as well. Open engagement events to increase awareness of opportunities in the defence industry. Uh, a, a small dedicated team, very importantly, from CDE and our Defence Equipment and sport Organisation, which will act as mentors to help them translate that idea into a practical reality, make sure they can take into the process, and that a good technological idea doesn't die because of a failure to negotiate MOD's processes. There's also going to be extra money uh, up to £2 million through the Small Business Research Initiative from the TSB, uh, SBRI. Uh, this is money which will be directly used to progress successful CD projects which are the most potential for defence purposes. Um, so it's our commitment to sourcing these new providers and opening up our business. That means I was particularly intrigued to see the next session we're debating the role of UK brands in the global marketplace. Now, of course, the whole issue of branding can be a bit misleading. In the old days, it was just one label, Made In. Uh, today, the same product could probably have a number of different labels through its provenance, such as Designed In, Manufactured In, Developed In. Uh, the, the global supply chain is a complex one, and that's true for defence as any other industry. Now, it, it could be argued that the individual UK armed forces are themselves a brand the British Army, the Royal Navy, the Royal Air Force, to say the names is to hear their power as fighting forces and as names inspire loyalty, affection, respect and trust. So it's probably true that if they're using a particular piece of a kit, then it's the kind of endorsement a lot of companies are very keen indeed to have. However, the fact is that Defence, MOD, as a customer, has no interest whatsoever in brands. We have no brand awareness. Uh, It's just not a fact in deciding what equipment to buy and how to support it. If a proposal is innovative, sound, the good value, it makes no difference to us whether it comes from a household name or or an up-and-coming SME, a behemoth or a brash upstart. We are not dazzled by shiny logos, and we're not interested in flashy marketing campaigns. We do not equate familiarity with excellence. A brand for us is no substitute for hard-earned corporate reputation for project management. For example, that reputation could belong to an SME just as much as a prime. Believe me, when I visit our forces in Afghanistan, as I did recently, the last thing I worry is who made the equipment. What they want to know is, does it work? Will it give me and the people I work with the right support and battle-winning capability, the right protection? That's what they're asking. So for us, the value of manufacturing and its products is about focusing on the end user. It's not about who makes the equipment or piece of kit, but rather who will be using it. In defence, that answer will be our servicemen and women, people whose lives very often depend on it, and indeed all of you whose liberty could depend on it too. I find, as I always say, when I talk to defence contractors, they are amazingly reluctant to ask questions in public. They're shy and retiring beasts. But many of you are not defence contractors here today. I have the first, the joy, I think, for the, almost the first time as a minister, they came have the lady first, please. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Just picking up on the point you made uh, very first of all, it's quite refreshing to hear an MP talk optimistically about manufacturing. I'm coming from a fashion manufacturing um, point of view, and whenever you hear Parliament MPs talk about fashion, it's it, it could be designed as London Fashion Week or it's size zero. It's mm. never anything optimistic, mm. and so it's refreshing to hear optimistic things about manufacturing, and we need more of it. That's
1: it. Stella McCartney is a constituent too, by the way, so I can only agree with you.
0: <laughs> My name is Andrew Johnson, I'm from EEF, Manufacturers' Organisation. I just had a question about uh, what you said about procurement and the, the white paper's move to make. Uh, procurement more focused on open competition and potentially buying off the shelf. Do you see any conflict with uh, that view and what uh, Dr. Cable at the business department's been saying about a wider idea about procurement, taking in the account of you know, supply chain benefits from, from uh, government procurement? And-
1: How long have we got? Um, I, could either, uh, I mean, that, that's a whole speech in its own right, really. Um, uh, no, it's a simple answer to your question. Um, I think that our defense white paper uh, is designed to help British manufacturing industry in in four different ways, really. Um, uh, if I can what the four different ways are. Uh, first, I believe that by being competitive, we help industry win. If we buy competitively, and in practice we find 85 to 90% of our competitions end up with British contractors anyhow. If we buy competitively on the open market... Uh, we actually drive up the competitiveness of UK manufacturing and help it to win in export markets. The defence budget in this country is shrinking at present. You know, you can't avoid that. Uh, uh, We have a huge defence industrial base here in the UK. It should, and every other country wants to do this too, so it's a competitive world we're in. But if we can get a bigger share of world export markets, we actually do good for the UK PLC and good for defence by sustaining skills in the UK. So I think encouraging competitiveness is crucial. Uh, I think also the fact, second point, exports. Really, really strong support for exports in this government. Um, the last government was a bit coy on this. Um, you know, I, I, I understand the reasons. I don't agree with them. We should be very, very proud of our defence export record, our responsible defence export record, and driving up exports, therefore, is really important. Um, also, developing the SME base. I, I, this, this is something I believe passionately in. We, I know from talking to my colleagues in defence that SMEs genuinely bring the innovation, the expertise, the knowledge, the, the, the fresh technologies that we need. We need to make sure our soldiers in the country are safe. You know, they, they do that. But also they're, they're, they're hugely important as well for the future of our overall economy. So, so two things come together, a strategic objective for defence and for the economy. So the SME agenda is not window dressing. It's not some afterthought. It's a crucial part of our approach to defence. And finally, the science budget. You know, I mean, what, what, what I was particularly passionate about is ensuring we saw no further cuts in the science budget. Defence has been a failing organisation. You know, it, it's been an administration, as it's like, with the Treasury administrator. And so, what quite often, like, a company's in problems. One of the first things it seeks to cut is its marketing budget or its research budget, because it's uncommitted money. You know, it enables it to meet the wages bill for next week. We must, we've done that too often in defence over the last decade. It's time to say no to that. To say no, because that science base does two things. First of all, it gives us the battle winning capabilities of the future in 5, 10, 15, perhaps 20 years' time. And also, it underpins a lot of the, the, the excellence of British manufacturing. And, and sorry, I'm, I'll, I'll stop at this last point. Um, also, don't forget that we do have um, some of the strongest SMEs in Europe. The European market is opening up. Now, sometimes that's controversial here in the UK. We say, oh, that's bad news. Oh, my God, the, 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 the foreigners will run rampant. Ah, we will run rampant over European defence. Uh, because we have a strong, competitive European... And as, as the European market opens up, our defence contracts will be better placed than anyone else in Europe to take advantage of that opening, because they'll be competitive yep. and innovative. So I see it as a really strong agenda for the growth of the defence industry. Not without its challenge. Uh, sometimes the big incumbents, to be honest. To, uh, that's true. But I see it as really positive good news for, for manufacturing and defence. That was a short version, rather a long speech. Uh, uh, Sir, uh, Sir Andrew Kahn, is allowed, uh, a panelist, uh, a future panellist and former colleague of mine, we did a lot of work together, when I was chairman of the business committee. An outstanding Peter, leader of UKTI. Thank you, Peter. I don't know whether I'm allowed to ask the question. Well, uh, can you just say a word about the ownership? Because one of the interesting things about the British defence industry, in the, which is, as you say, our largest manufacturing uh, sector and the sector which does the most R&D, both really important points, but of course, a lot of, a lot of it is foreign owned. I mean, you, you have uh, Thales UK, you have Finmeccanica, uh, you have General Dynamics. Uh, all of these, you know, in the top five, you have these, these, these foreign owned companies. Do you want to say a word about the foreign ownership yeah, of UK I, manufacturing? I, 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 yeah, I, in defense terms in specifically, probably I ought to stick to because that's my brief. And I, I look at Nigel, i not embarrass, but BS System's shareholding base for 50% of the American now, publicly listed. Just under 50%. So, BA Systems is almost half American-owned as well, and I say it's a strength. You know, I think it's a good thing in internalization. And what I want to do is, is, is make sure that we are blind to the ownership of companies that come here to set up. I, you know, I'm delighted, uh, and I, uh, I, I say this knowing what future I haven't solved some people. Companies like General Dynamics have come and set up in the UK. I'm delighted that Northrop Grumman are here. I'm delighted that Lockheed Martin are here. Because they bring the expertise of their American partners, to, uh, parents, to the UK, but they see the UK as a base where they can actually use as a hub for their own activities. I mean Lockheed Martin are making an extraordinary contribution to British defence and British economy now. They, the Warrior Sustainment Programme they're doing life, they're, you know, involves a huge delegation of the SME supply chain. They're, they're, they're managing that very effectively. So I have no concerns to, if it's all about ownership. What I want to do is make sure we're attractive for doing business. It's one of the reasons I put this emphasis on competition, because I believe it brings the internationally mobile investment to the UK. That's Sport for exports brings it to the UK. Uh, I, I really don't worry about ownership. I do want to see British jobs increase. Of course I do, as a politician. Well, who wouldn't? But I believe the way to do that is to encourage a competitive, open environment in which everyone is genuinely welcome. Uh, And and I think we we have gained enormously over the years from that approach. It's not actually radically different from what what the last government was doing. It's a continuity in in many aspects. The the, the controversial controversial inverted commas contract award for four tankers recently, which was was built in South Korea, but with massive British input. It was actually launched by the last government when they decided, quite rightly in my view, they were not all like stalls. Uh, so so I, I think we need to be blind to where we do stuff and where we own stuff, because uh, these, these are increasingly meaningless concepts. You know, what, what is British? What is American? What is what is anyone's these days?
0: I know your brief is defence here, um, but you've got a wide range of experience and trade. What are the other areas in the UK manufacturing, apart from defence, which you think could do well, need more help, and um, are you know, good potential for the UK? Uh,
1: there are niche areas we have to hang on to uh, where we've got absolutely genuine world leadership and motorsport is the classic example of that. Uh, and we 'd benefit hugely from motorsport industry and defence now, learning from their production, their, their development techniques, bringing that experience into defence. Um, and we've seen a huge increase in use of composites, for example, in defence come in from the motorsport industry, hugely valuable to us a uh, company like Lola who are building the radar domes with the Type 45 destroyers but the BA systems you know, they're, they're, they've come in as a, as a motorsport contractor so motorsport huge niche players I thought it was the single biggest one uh, 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 two, the two single areas are cars and planes I think probably I'll you think about that carefully afterwards but cars because we attracted inward investment because the, 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 the Thatcher government had an industrial policy it didn't say it was an industrial policy but it was it attracted every single bit of mobile investment it could to the UK it, was, wasn't, it was entirely, wasn't without controversy at the time. Bringing the, the Japanese in was not entirely popular with some of the best interests in the UK. But that means now we have a fantastically successful automotive sector in the UK employing thousands of skilled people and protecting that kind of that, That's where openness brings dividends. Closure has its penalty. And aerospace is the other one. Aerospace I'm more nervous about uh, because I see international subsidy in the, in the industry. I see protectionism. I see lots of people snapping at our heels. I'm very pleased in the budget last week, the government announced this new initiative on the aerospace, um, uh, I the, what they call it, the aerodynamic, aerodynamic centre which is a really important example of government commitment to sustaining aerospace skills. Defence is a role here too. So that's the sector. But there are probably many other sectors. I and mean, the fashion industry is, is, is hugely successful. Um, and I think that something like computer games is manufacturing. In my, in my, in my book, you know, they, we have to change our understanding of manufacturing. You know, writing software code for me is manufacturing too these days. So I, I really think these are positive. Yes, there's lots of doom and gloom out there. There are bad news. Of course there are. There are things happening. There are challenges. But there are so many sectors which are doing well and could do even better. If we talk them up and actually encourage people to join them, people, talented people took an inch in them rather than rushing off to work in merchant banks, which fortunately is becoming less popular. Best news, best news last year? 10% increase in physics applications at British universities. Fantastic. I know that your excellent speech right at the beginning here of being a great advocate and knowledge, very knowledgeable about manufacturing, um, but it's, we do still struggle with other areas of government with a relevant angle on this, such as business innovation and skills, the junior department, we've always heard it called thus. When I used to work for Tim Egger, he used to say that. Oh, I worked for um, Tim Egger too. So. Yes, I know you did, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, why I yeah, said yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and then, of course, we've got um, DFEE, uh, and we've heard lots of conversations earlier today about the skills and recruitment difficulties a lot of existing businesses, particularly in the South East, mm. are having to compete mm. with the rubbishing of the manufacturing mm. sector, which is mm. so sad. Are you making these sorts of speeches with your cabinet colleagues to try and get them to view manufacturing in a more joined-up way? I, 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 well, I, I, yes, I am, is the answer. And Mark Prisker is lead responsible. is a good friend of mine. We talk regularly about the issues and see eye to eye on almost everything. Um, uh, so I think we are, yes. I mean I I, I, sh- I, I wish that um, I wish that Biz had and DTI over the years, not in sort of comment about the present, had had a higher reputation in government. And it, funnily enough, it was when the biggest non interventionist of all time ran really. it, Lord Yalm of Grafham, my old boss I was a special advisor to, when he ran it, it had a it had a really high prevalence going places and had a, requiring a confidence and spring in its step. it really that department really matters. Um, but um, I, I, a lot of time, and I, I love it dearly as a business. As chairman of the biz committee in last Parliament. I, I think it's a great department doing really important. So um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think we understand these things. But I think we have to be very. I know it's very interesting. The process of challenge in the white paper for me about this competitiveness issue has really focused my thinking. You know, how do how do we best serve the interests of industry? How do we, and I think it's by talking it up and challenging it at the same time, doing these two things. And that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you very much.